This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 28, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. British elections delivered a surprise boost for conservatives, but what does that victory and other storylines of the election mean for liberty? Mark Littlewood is Director General of the Institute for Economic Affairs. He spoke last week with Cato policy analyst Matthew Feeney. Expecting to see a so-called hung parliament, that is to say that no single party could form a majority government. And as you see, typically in most Western European countries, there would be all sorts of horse trading and haggling. And eventually, somebody would cobble together the necessary number of seats to form a government. That was what was anticipated. And the opinion polls suggested it was going to be an incredibly close-run thing. Uh, as to whether that government was going to be a coalition government led by the Conservative Party, the centre-right party, or a coalition government headed up by the Labour Party, the the left of centre party. Uh, To almost everyone's complete astonishment, at one minute past 10 on Thursday, May the 7th, it being polling day, uh, the exit poll was released showing the Conservatives within a whisker of actually winning an overall majority themselves you need to technically get to 325 seats out of our 650 to win a majority. And the exit poll suggested 316 uh, seats for the Conservatives, which would have meant uh, that David Cameron, the Prime Minister, would have been the only person who could have formed a, a credible government. But as the results trickled in, it got better and better for the Conservatives. And in fact, the final tally at 331 means the Conservatives can govern in their own right. We have a majority government. Uh, I think that that, amongst the spread of results that were possible, that's a pretty good one for libertarians in a number of ways. Uh, One of the key battles in the election, one of the key arguments was about public spending, about uh, reducing, indeed eliminating the UK's budget deficit, which was a pledge of the previous government, a coalition of conservatives and liberal democrats. They only got halfway there. They had a five-year plan to eliminate the budget deficit, and they've got rid of about half the budget deficit. The conservatives uh, have promised now to try and eliminate the budget deficit entirely in the next two or three years. So on public spending and beginning to reduce the colossal size of the state, uh, this is a good result for libertarians. They are not moving anything like as quickly as most libertarians would like. But I think the argument in Britain for some degree of fiscal prudence, consolidation and fiscal conservatism has been won and decisively won. I'd go so far as to say that the Overton window has shifted with regard to public spending. That's the good news. There are a number of areas which I think are less good news from a libertarian point of view, particularly on civil liberties. In the previous uh, government, the Liberal Democrats, the junior coalition partners, whilst not being uh, as good on economic policy, were pretty good on civil liberties. The Conservatives, unleashed and able to govern wholly on their own, are already showing signs of bringing in what has been dubbed the Snoopers Charter to make sure that the intelligence agencies can monitor vast amounts of internet traffic, and I think they will be minded to be less libertarian in in those sort of fields. So a mixed picture, but from an economic perspective, uh, I think there's quite a lot to be confident about. And of course, the Scottish nationalists did very well. So what are the implications for that uh, constitutionally and perhaps also for the economy? Yeah, the interesting thing was uh, not just the result that the Conservatives won and surprised many people by, by winning. 
there were a whole number of different subscripts. Uh, uh, one of the most important being in Scotland, where the Scottish National Party, who had a limited representation in the last parliament, won nearly all of the seats in Scotland, 59 seats in Scotland, 56 of them fell to the Scottish National Party. And having just said uh, what I confidently said about fiscal consolidation and a shift of the Overton window, they were running on an unambiguously leftist platform, spend, spend, spend. Uh, we don't like so-called austerity. Uh, and they swept the board in Scotland. In terms of the overall balance in Parliament, it hasn't made an enormous difference in the sense that essentially what was happening was Labour seats were falling to the Scottish National Party. So they would still have been seats on the, on the left of centre column. But constitutionally, it does have pretty significant implications. 50% uh, of the Scottish electorate voted for the Scottish National Party. They won nearly all of the seats. This would sort of be the equivalent of, I don't know, a state like Texas sending nearly all its congressmen as the Texan Independence Party uh, on a platform to secede from the union. That's what the Scottish National Party is all about. So I think there is going to be a long, drawn-out, complex and difficult debate to be had about how the constituent parts of the United Kingdom, Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland, need to interact with each other in future and what a firm, fair constitutional settlement looks like. At the moment, we are a long way from achieving that. We have asymmetrical devolution, in effect. Scotland has its own parliament. Wales has its own assembly, London has its own assembly, England as a whole is just governed by Westminster, the, 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 the national centralised parliament. So we're going to have to sort that out. Uh, I think we could well end up in the not too distant future with an independent Scotland, actually, a, a, a severing of that tie. Uh, but whether we do or whether we don't, efforts now need to be made to make sure that there is a fair constitutional settlement in which you don't have Scottish MPs uh, affecting English policy whilst also able to devise their own policies north of the border. This is going to be quite a challenge for David Cameron upon his re-election. And of course, uh, the results of the election bring up the issue of another possible secession, which is the whole of the UK from the European Union. Uh, and what is a libertarian to do in this environment? You have the EU, which uh, is a very bureaucratic sort of body, but it allows for the free movement of people and uh, is a pretty decent trade bloc. Uh, so will the UK uh, leave the EU? And if so, uh, what should some, a classical liberal think about mm -hmm. that? Uh, some good questions. Uh, the, the Conservatives are committed to holding a referendum on our membership of the European Union. And that referendum will be held uh, before 20, the end of 2017 and may very well be held in 2016. Uh, the, there's no doubt that will now take place. I can't see anything stopping that referendum. Uh, and, of course, we had the, uh, the emergence of UKIP, the UK Independence Party, who scored 13% of the vote, and their principal proposition is to remove uh, uh, Britain from the European Union. What are uh, classical liberals, libertarians, to make of this question? I think you're right that it's a difficult one. Um, on the one hand, uh, agencies and institutions that facilitate trade, free movement of people, free movement of goods and services, lot to be, uh, lot to be commended for. The challenge is this, I think. A, can David Cameron renegotiate our membership such that our relationship with the European Union uh, gets rid of some of the strangling and suffocating bureaucracy and directives and bureaucratic interference in uh, 
the day-to-day lives of Britons and therefore is able to put a package to the British people which, if you like, has most of the good points and many fewer of the bad points. That's the first question. I'm not hugely optimistic that he's going to get much of a renegotiation at all. But um, but let's see. I mean, that, the, the, the period of renegotiation hasn't started. Yes, the Europeans are saying that they don't really want to renegotiate. But uh, there's some chance that David Cameron will get a better deal. Uh, then, but let's suppose he doesn't, or he comes back with a rather feeble deal, having changed just sort of a couple of sub-clauses in an, an appendix of some treaty somewhere. What should the overall libertarian view be of, uh, sort of Britain's membership of the EU or the EU in general? Well, from the British perspective, I again think it's a difficult one because one wants to be associated with the free trading, cosmopolitan, uh, sort of market-orientated elements uh, of the EU whilst um, ensuring that you don't just have a centralised bureaucracy who are making things difficult for business and employers and, and, and for trade. So the question for me would hinge a bit on whether the out campaign, whether the blueprint and proposal for Britain outside of the European Union looked and felt like one which was more classically liberal, more open to trade, more about Britain becoming a global player rather than just a European player. Or is the out campaign going to be rather mean-spirited going to be about uh, we want no more immigrants ever to enter the United Kingdom or at least very, very few of them. Uh, We're not quite so sure about all of this trade stuff anyway. Why do we need French cheese? What's what's wrong with British cheese? Why do we need French wine? Why can't we make our own wine? Why do we need German cars? Why why can't we just make our own cars? That you could potentially see a narrative developing that was inward-looking, introspective and protectionist. And if that's what the out campaign looks like, it isn't a classical liberal, libertarian or free trading proposition. It could go either way. Uh, And I think that the test is what do the antis, what do the no side look like? Do they look like socialists um, and nationalists or do they look like genuine free trading libertarians? Well, speaking of socialists, you mentioned earlier that the the Overton window in the British electorate uh, seems to have shifted. I suppose a question that might arise is, why is this? Uh, so what, what happened in the last government to perhaps make it this way? Um, and what happened in the campaign that perhaps uh, changed some people's minds? Well, I think that the, the, the truth of the matter is, although, uh, and I don't try and say this in any patronizing way, although the, the, the great British public don't necessarily have the firmest grasp of epi- economic theory, I think they have picked up the message that governments can't continually live beyond the means of the taxpayer. And that the the now re-elected Cameron administration, but the first Cameron administration, inherited a huge hole in the finances and went about solving that. And for all of the protests and the screaming that sort of any reduction in public expenditure was going to lead to colossal unemployment and a sort of return to the days of Charles Dickens, you know, England, if we were lucky. Um, actually, the government was able to, albeit only modestly, reduce government expenditure. And guess what? Western civilization didn't collapse. The economy started to pick up. Uh, employment has been incredibly robust. The private sector has created many more jobs than those that have gone in the public sector. So there's a record. Uh, the government had a record, of a, a pretty decent economic record, of having managed to modestly reduce spending, only modestly, but also seeing an economy which is 
booming would overstate it, but it is now returning to sort of normalised growth rates of between 2 and 3%. Uh, the Labour Party, in contrast, uh, throughout the last parliament and indeed throughout the campaign, were very clear that they didn't believe they'd overspent anything at all. Uh, the entire problem was to do with the banking crisis. There's some truth in that. It was the banking crisis that led GDP to fall off the edge of a cliff. But the government didn't respond uh, to the new reality. The, the former Labour government had been spending money on the assumption that 3% per annum growth was going to happen ad infinitum with no plan B about what you do if you hit a glitch, a problem, or even indeed fall off the edge of a cliff. And in Warren Buffett's memorable words... When the tide goes out, you get to see who's swimming naked. And the United Kingdom was swimming, swimming naked. And the Labour proposition was unable to, in any way, apologise for or recognise that they had overspent. And Ed Miliband, the Labour leader in particular, some people say this was the defining moment of the campaign. I think it was just a crystallisation of the problem with Ed Miliband's proposition. Uh, in a television audience was asked, you know, do you now accept that the last Labour government spent too much money? And he said, no, no, I don't, I don't accept that. And you could actually hear this sort of sharp intake of breath from the audience who were just ordinary members of the British public, that this was uh, implausible and reckless. And the Conservatives line that sort of, why would you give the car keys back to the guys who crashed the car, resonated. Since the Labour Party's defeat, Ed Miliband has uh, quit as leader of the party. Uh, whenever you lose an election, that's almost always what happens to our main party leaders. Uh, he has gone off for a long holiday in Ibiza, uh, and uh, other senior members of the Labour Party are now grappling to try and get hold of his, uh, of his crown. And already the debate in the Labour Party it seems to be focusing around whether some sort of mea culpa or admission of guilt needs to be made and whether actually in future the Labour Party needs to talk in rather more sensible um, terms about government spending and also, to be fair, about aspiration. The Labour Party's pitch economically was all about how unfair everything was, uh, how the system didn't work for the little guy, didn't work for the average guy, it was only working for those at the top. I think there are some elements of truth in some elements of that proposition. But it sounded like a long whinge. Um, anecdotal evidence, I know, but it does seem to be that sort of small businessmen, um, people who were doing kind of okay for themselves, thought that the Labour Party hated them, um, thought that the Labour Party was not actually a Labour Party at all, it was a welfare party. And until the Labour Party can reconnect um, with a programme for sound, you know, sound finances, sound public finances, not seeing taxing people ever more and spending every more from Whitehall, the centre of our government, as the solution to every human ill, and can tap into the fact that many, most British people are aspirational, want to earn more, want to keep more of their money in their back pocket than hand it over in tax, trust themselves to make their own decisions about their life, not the state. Until the Labour Party can reconnect with that, I think that they are going to find it very, very difficult to win an election again. It's worth pointing out that in the last 49 years in Britain, the only person to lead the Labour Party to anything approaching a decisive victory has been Tony Blair. Uh, they have not really been able to win an election without Tony Blair. They sometimes just about squeaked through or just got through with a tiny, tiny, tiny 
uh, minor, uh, majority government. But Blair has been the only one in the last nearly half a century to meet with electoral success. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that they re-embraced Tony Blair's uh, foreign policy uh, approach. That was a catastrophe, the Iraq war. But on economics and aspiration, Blair understood something that most other Labour Party leaders have not. And if they wish to reconnect with electoral success, they're going to have to find at least that piece of Blairism and Tony Blair to lead them back to power at some time, I suspect, in the quite long distant future. So while there might have been some sort of uh, rejection of uh, gov big government spending in the last election, uh, explain how that uh, fits in with the British nanny state or the British uh, surveillance state. How how has the electorate been treated these two things, uh, which is surprising given, well, perhaps not surprising, but there's been some obvious rejection of uh, big government spending? Well, I'm not sure it is surprising. I mean, I think that in, you know, in very, very broad brush terms, if you want to know the government that Britain has got and pretty much the government that people voted for or the way they voted, uh, we're going to get conservatism. Um, and that, in roundabout terms, means that there's going to be uh, some degree of fiscal prudence, some desire to get spending under some semblance of control, some effort over the medium term to actually reduce taxes more meaningfully than they have been before. We've been taxing the population to the absolute maximum. But it doesn't imply from that, although the liberta libertarian credo does, that, that you would necessarily embrace a much more civil libertarian approach to... Uh, things like snooping on the internet and communications data and the, and the rest of it. So um, I fear that we're going to get more of that. I fear that that battle has not been won in the court of public opinion. British people are divided about it. They're not all mad keen for the government to know their every move. But on the, on the other hand, neither are they all passion, passionate civil libertarians either. So in terms of changing the climate of opinion, I think those who believe in something approaching sound public finances have scored quite a decisive victory and public opinions moved that way. In terms of the state snooping on us, spying on us, in terms of a surveillance state, that battle still needs to be won. Well, I think uh, something that, that uh, really did stand out on this side of uh, the Atlantic uh, was that the results really didn't match uh, predictions. Now, why is that? Is it the case that people were lying to pollsters? Is there a problem with polling methodology? Uh, what is your take on that? Yeah, it is interesting that the, the, the polls were pretty consistently throughout the campaign uh, showing the two major parties, Labour and the Conservative, neck and neck. Uh, and that would have led to uh, indecisive arithmetic in the, in the uh, House of Commons. As it uh, as it turned out, the Conservatives won by basically seven clear percentage points, uh, a pretty decisive lead. This would have been approximately the equivalent of um, Romney having beaten Obama in the last election by 3%. You know, everybody sort of thought Obama's 3 or 4% ahead. If it had suddenly turned out that Romney had won by 3 or 4%, it was about that surprising. Now, why was this? There are a range of possible explanations. I suspect there could be a little bit of truth in each of them. One possibility is the phenomenon of so-called shy conservatives or shy Tories, um, the, the, the other name we have for the party. Do people not say to opinion pollsters that they're going to vote conservative? Are they in some way embarrassed about it? Uh, and they're much, people who vote Labour are much prouder about it. And so did the opinion polls fail to draw that out? That, there's a possibility that's true, but I don't think it's the whole explanation. 
Um, second possibility is that there genuinely was a late surge to the Conservatives, that suddenly at the last minute, three or four percent of the electorate decided to switch from Labour to Conservative almost as they were walking to the polling station. Or there were lots of undecideds who went and walked to the polling station, not really knowing who they were going to vote for until the ballot paper appeared in their hands. And those people broke decisively for the Conservatives. Again, there might be some truth in this, but I don't think it's the whole truth of, of, of what happened. I think undecideds at the last minute did probably break for the Conservatives. But turnout was about the same as last time. There wasn't some obvious last-minute surge of you know, millions of people who weren't intending to vote suddenly going to the polling stations. But perhaps the undecideds broke for the Conservatives uh, towards the end. And then the third issue is I think there are some clearly some structural problems in the polling industry. Uh, there seemed to be groupthink going on. Pollsters were very loath to even publicly release opinion polls that seemed to be out of kilter with other polls. There was one poll company that had the result bang on right on the eve of poll, but thought it was so numerically preposterous, they decided not to put that information in the public domain. So I'm not suggesting any corruption here, but there was almost a sort of cartel mentality amongst opinion pollsters that once it had become conventional wisdom that it was neck and neck, that if your methodologies or your numbers were showing anything other than it was neck and neck, then they should be discarded and the group think must prevail. So they've got an awful lot to learn from that as well. And I suspect those three phenomena, shy conservative voters, a last minute break to the conservatives and the fact that the polls probably didn't have their methodological approach quite right. All in all, that's probably enough to explain why rather than it being neck and neck, the conservatives were six or seven percent ahead. So something the polls did predict and did pan out was the Liberal Democrats lost a lot of seats. I think it was 57 seats uh, down to eight. So what what is the future of uh, liberalism in the British sense? Uh, I know you've written about uh, the state of the party and its future. Is there a future for the Liberal Democrats? And if so, what is it? Uh, They got destroyed, right? They didn't just have a bad night. They were eviscerated. Uh, They were nearly completely removed from the political landscape. And although the opinion polls did indicate that the Liberal Democrats were going to have a bad night and lose a good number of their seats, no one predicted that they were going to be reduced to a block of eight. Most of the betting markets and the opinion polls were assuming there'd be 20, 25 or 30 Liberal Democrats. When the uh, polls came out, initially showing 10 Liberal Democrat high command sort of laughed at these exit polls. Oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, that's completely false. That's completely untrue. It's going to be nothing like that. Well, it ended up being eight. It ended up being even worse than that. I, I think for the uh, British Liberal Democrat Party, which brings together, it's quite an eclectic mix, the, the British Lib Dems. There are some classical liberals in it. There's a wing of the party which is much more social democratic from when the Liberal Party and the, and the Social Democrats merged. There are people in it who are almost sort of single-issue campaigners around issues such as constitutional reform. Um, there are people in it who just don't feel comfortable in either the Labour or the Conservative Party and don't have any particularly clear ideology other than that. But being reduced to eight seats, I think, removes the Liberal Democrats as a serious political player for a very long time. Something could turn up, uh, you know, maybe, you know, some international event or some issue that they latch onto. They were the only major party that was opposed to the Iraq war, for example, back in the day. Maybe something like that can regenerate them. But they have been absolutely devastated and destroyed. They are a small husk of what they were in the last parliament and seem to be as far far away from power as the Liberal Party has really ever been. 
So all of this being said, what do you think the general outlook is going forward? Uh, quite a bit of confusion constitutionally. We've got to, in Britain, resolve what our relationship is with the EU, and that decision day is arriving fast. We've got internal constitutional issues about how we actually want to construct the UK. Do we want a federal UK? Uh, are we happy to actually see the UK separate and Scotland become a wholly independent country? Constitutional issues take up a lot of time, and despite the fact that some people think they're dry and boring, can actually whip up some sometimes quite nasty passions. That's a big challenge for us over the next couple of years. I think we've got to use the upside of the election result that, if you like, economic common sense has, it appears, prevails amongst the British electorate. Uh, I think that we probably are now more minded to elect fiscally prudent politicians in the UK than maybe you are in the United States of America, actually. Uh, and we need to continue to force home those advantages. We need to keep a very watchful eye on civil liberties and the way the individual is treated by the state in a regulatory and surveillance way, not just in a tax and spending way. That's going to be a big challenge, potentially a challenge that one can meet because although the Conservatives are back and did fantastically better than most people expected them to, they do only have a majority of 12 seats in the legislature. So you only a minor rebellion amongst Conservatives would potentially stop them pushing through legislation which uh, is unsound from a liberal perspective. So good news on the economy. Uh, not perfect news, but good news. Worrying news, I think, on civil liberties, a battle that will have to go on. And a lot of constitutional issues, which I think the political classes, let alone the British public, have yet to really grapple with. Mark Littlewood is Director General at the Institute of Economic Affairs. You can watch a full event evaluating the state of freedom in the UK at our website, cato.org.